We ask, would you be pleased, as we have already asked, to speak here this morning. Holy Spirit, you love your people. You love your word. And you love to exalt Christ, the Son, and Holy Spirit, you love to draw people to him. So would you do that here this morning, uh, through this time? Would you keep me out of the way? Would you speak through me, Lord, I pray, and in spite of me? Because you love to glorify your name. And uh, Father, let us bow. As we see you, let us be changed. And as you speak, might we listen and be transformed. We give you this time to that end in Christ's name. Amen. Trevin Wax relates the story of Stephen Curtis Chapman. In 2008, tragedy struck the family of Christian singer-songwriter Stephen Curtis Chapman. When one of his teenage sons arrived home, turned the corner of the driveway, and didn't see his five-year-old sister, Maria Sue, who had darted directly into the path of the SUV. Chapman saw the accident take place from the front porch. He says he doesn't remember anything about the immediate aftermath, those ensuing moments. And though he doesn't remember something that happened just moments later, there are multiple witnesses to the account who say that as Chapman was leaving the scene to go to the hospital where little Maria's body would be taken and she would be pronounced dead upon arrival, as he was leaving the scene, he looked over and he saw his son crumpled up in a ball on the ground. He saw his older brother on top of him, holding him and praying for him. At that moment, Stephen Curtis Chapman asked the driver to stop. He rolled down the window, and from the window he shouted, Will Franklin, your father loves you! In the moment of our great crisis, we will be squeezed. And what comes out will show what we are grounded in, won't it? Trials will come, attacks, strife, persecution, even relationships and the difficulties that come with those. All of these reveal our hearts in big ways and in small ones, and they show where our confidence lies. And all of these things, by the way, are being experienced by the Christians in Philippi to whom Paul writes this little letter. Trevin Wax will go on to say that the focus in that moment is not so much what should I do, but rather what do I have stored up because that's what is going to be seen. Character is built on what we store up. Stability is found in what we've stored up in all of those moments preceding the time of the testing. Where are we grounded is really the question of our passage today. It's where we invest our every day that's being revealed every week. Here in the middle of Philippians chapter 4, Paul hasn't left his entreaty to these Christians for them to stand firm, his call for them to stand together in unity. He has not left his theme of being gospel-worthy citizens. And he is still calling them and us to gospel glory and to joy suffering. But when he gets to the middle of chapter 4, what we find today, after expressing his deep, deep love for them through multiple phrases, we saw at the very opening verse, chapter 4, verse 1. 
And right after reminding them of, them of their rich redemption, that was the closing verse of chapter 3. One day, the, the Savior, the Lord Jesus, whom we wait for, will return from heaven and transform your lowly body into his glorious, redeemed, um, resurrected body. After speaking of that hope and that love, he then describes for them the divine beauty grounded in a life of being gospel-worthy citizens. And he gives several commands in pursuing that, that make up our passage today. Our passage this morning is really almost a laundry list of commands, but he has, he has done the the foundation, the hard work of God's grace, speaking to those who know God's love and have the hope in Christ. We have six verses this morning. There are probably five sermons in our passage today, but they all surround one theme, the beauty of a gospel-worthy life. Pick up with me in Philippians 4. Let's read our passage starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul here is now describing, in a sense, it's a mini climax in the book of commands of how to live out this life that he has been describing and modeling and exhorting them towards throughout this little letter. He gives them the divine beauty of grounded, gospel-worthy citizens. I'm just going to let you write in the bullet points because they're easy enough to do so as we go this morning if you'd like to follow along in notes. First, Paul gives the Lord's command to be joyful. Be joyful. So we have in verse 4, it's a phrase he's already said, but he says it twice here in this single verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul has already been modeling this throughout the letter to rejoice. When enemies in chapter 1 seek specifically to cause Paul strife through their malicious intent, he rejoices that they are preaching the gospel. And he says, in the Lord, I have much to rejoice, even if they mean it for evil. When threatened and imprisoned, he says in chapter 2, and yet I rejoice because I know that now, whether through by my death or my life, that Christ will be magnified in my body. And so I rejoice in all of this. In the middle of chapter 2, when his life is poured out in service, for these Christians in Philippi, and he describes it. He rejoices there. He rejoices because there is fruit in his service that the Spirit of God brings about in the life of these believers. And he says, in the Lord, though I suffer, though I am poured out like a drink offering, he says, what privilege do I have? I would do it all over a million times again. And he rejoices in the Lord. We may not be able to choose our emotions. 
Someone has said, emotions just are. They just happen. We don't typically sit down and think, you know what, right now, I think I'm going to feel afraid. Yeah, I think now would be a good time to go ahead and feel afraid. Right now, I'm going to feel anxious. No, emotions just are. Now, that doesn't mean that emotions are separate from any moral bearing. In fact, they very much reveal it. But there are times that emotions may be almost entirely inexplicable to us. We cannot necessarily choose our emotions, but we can guide our focus. When is it then that we are called to rejoice? Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. There will never be a time that you cannot choose where to place your focus. As I've mentioned, there are about five sermons in our passage today, and verse 4 is one all by itself. It's one that we don't hear once, think, yeah, let me, let me learn a couple of steps about how to practice that, and then I'm going to get really good at it. And by this weekend, I'll have rejoice in the Lord always, like knocked, for the rest of my life. No, we will be living out this command, joyfully growing in this practice all of our days. And there is never a time when we cannot choose to rejoice in success or in failure, in working because, man, I know what God has called me to do today, this week, with this energy, with this money, with this time, with this desire. I know, and so I can get to work, and I can rejoice in the Lord in it. Or in the season of waiting, I have no idea what the Lord wants with this time or this opportunity. I don't even know where he's leading next. And yet we can guide our focus to rejoice in the Lord even in that season. Whether it's the season of revelation and understanding God is showing himself to me in new ways and so I rejoice in the Lord. Or whether it's the season of darkness. It's not now the time for you to know, my child. Yet we can rejoice in the Lord. Why is that? It's because... The command to rejoice is grounded, like everything in this passage. Rejoice where? I've said it multiple times already, in the Lord. Our rejoicing is grounded in the Lord. He is all of our reason. If now purchased by Christ, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, I am His for His purpose, then there is no season where He will ever leave me nor or forsake me. He says, I am at work in you, back in chapter 1. The Spirit of God is at work in you to bring to completion that work which He began in you, and He'll continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so he is our reason, regardless of the trial or time or season that we're in. He is our understanding, even when we don't understand. He is our purpose, even if we're not sure why. We know that he is the one to whom we can come, and seeing him in him, we can rejoice. When we turn our mind on the Lord, we begin to breathe again. We can starve ourselves. We can suffocate our spirits when we focus only on ourselves or only on the troubles that surround us, and they are many, and there will always be plenty. But when we focus on the Lord, what we find, regardless of our circumstance, 
is that the Lord himself is never anxious. The Lord himself is never hand-wringing. If we pause and say, Lord, let me see you, and we turn our eyes to him in prayer and in his word, and we find him, we will not see him pacing about the throne in circles, circling his hands like this, going, I'm really not sure what to do next. This is not at all what I expected. It wasn't supposed to go this way. I'm confused over what's happening here. We'll find the God seated on the throne. No, it is not wrong to ascribe to him that sometimes he grieves and sometimes he weeps. He is never confused. He is never caught off guard. He never second guesses anything that he does. He never has to make up for a mistake that he committed. He never fears that something he does won't quite go right. And when we see the Lord God, we go, Lord, your ways are written in the stones before the foundations of the earth. Your paths are from eternity. Your ways are sovereign. He is never at a loss or confused. Be joyful because we can choose to guide our focus and our actions to rejoice in the Lord always. Isaiah 26.3 is a a verse that um, years and years ago um, I committed to memory and had to call to mind this week. Um, And I memorized it in the King James. And I'm sorry because it sounds snooty, but it's just cooler in the King James, right? Isaiah 26.3, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, for he trusteth in thee. Just cooler in the King James. When we put our focus in him, when we are stayed in him with our mind, then he keeps us in his peace. And there seeing him, the God who is never afraid, who's never second guessing, the God who is sovereign in his goodness and yet intimate in his care and concern for the world, there we can rejoice in any and all seasons. Paul, in fact, will capitalize upon this command by his own example, rejoice in the Lord always. The verse we won't get to today, but Lord willing soon, drop down to verse 10. What is the very next thing he's going to say after this list of commands? But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, he says. Where did that come from, Paul? Oh, that rejoice in the Lord thing. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And he goes on to describe his great need his want, and his lack. Rejoicing for God's provision through the Philippians and admitting whether or not he had the provision, he was content because his mind was stayed on the Lord. You see, be joyful is grounded, as with every command in this passage, in God. Be joyful in the Lord. And brothers and sisters, we are much in need of God's perspective, aren't we? Rejoice in the Lord. Second way, second command, and the way that we walk in the divine beauty of being grounded, gospel-worthy citizens. Be joyful. Second, be gentle. Be gentle. Verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. This is a uh, hard word that the NAS has translated, let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. By the way, um, 
I don't think that it really is very often that the translation into the English uh, should be found to be a really, really hard to express. If you have a teacher who regularly tells you, regularly says, oh, this word's really difficult to express in the English, um, you might be a little skeptical about that. Every language has its own manner of difficulties and its own matter of simplicities. And in different places, different languages are more complex or different words have more elastic ranges of meaning. This just happens to be one of those words. It's not difficult to understand. It's just difficult to get one exact English word that kind of matches what this word is doing in its original language. You get my point? So, gentle spirit, or some of your translations might say forbearing spirit, it's worth spending a moment here just to get some of the nuance that isn't entirely there just in the word gentle. So, let me give you a quick recitation of what some of the experts have said. This word, some have said, could be called willing to yield. Others have said, this is one who is charitable to men's faults and merciful in the face of their failings. Every one of these descriptions I'm going to give you, I want you to catch the idea that gentleness, when that word is understood in its original, it's not really something that's seen or shown until like something bad happens. It's only after you're in the moment of duress or difficulty that it's seen. And gentleness is a good word, but gentleness doesn't always mean that. You get the point? Refusal to retaliate. Graciousness. Grace is not something that's deserved or earned. Another translator says, this is an inner disposition that enables a generous response to another's aggression. You get the point? Gentleness will work as long as we color it with the right understanding. So what's the point? Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. This is a command, and it's put in the passive, but make no mistake, it's active in what we're called to do. We are actively to live in such a way that people can see a response to duress, that they would say, that is peaceable, that is reasonable, that is understanding, that is forbearing, that is gracious, that is gentle. No, you may not win every argument if you seek to have a forbearing spirit, but you also won't have trouble sleeping at night. You won't have to fight with your conscience and the Holy Spirit after the fact. If you say, Lord, grant me the grace to, to absorb this, to move toward this, not run from it, or, or to help rescue within the midst of it. A gentle spirit in some contexts can very much include gentle confrontation, gentle courage. In fact, I think the man of gentle spirit is the one who seeks to dispel strife. He loves the truth and he loves people at the same time. The woman of forbearing spirit, she holds out hope and she points to something that's bigger than just the scenario that has brought us into this morass and says there is a savior who is bigger than our circumstances. Be joyful in the Lord. You're not surprised to find out that be gentle is also grounded. Let your gentle spirit, verse 5, be known to all. And then he says, the Lord is near. 
I need you to know that this passage this week is a bit maddening for uh, an analytic guy like me to study through because Paul does not give the grammatical cues that explain how and what the different phrases are doing in so many different places. Paul is a master order, and the Holy Spirit leading him does a great job in writing the Word of God. It's perfect. But all the normal cues that I would expect to see in the brilliant scholarly writing of Paul, I don't find in this passage. He just gives a list of this and then that, and oh, by the way, also this, and yes, that. And you're like, how do all these things fit together, Paul? And I think that's the point. Each of these are overarching commands that are now possible to walk in by the grace of God, the Spirit of God, presence and working in the life of the believer, not perfectly, stumblingly, haltingly, but to walk in and each and every one of them are an overarching banner for what he wants for these believers there in Philippi. And so right in verse 5, he does it with no connection let your gentle spirit be known to all. And then he says, the Lord is near. Separate sentence. Okay. It'd be nice if you'd have said, because, Paul, let your gentle spirit be seen by all because the Lord is near. And that, I think, is obviously the point. What does it mean the Lord is near? Two options. It could mean that the Lord Jesus is appearing soon. Or it could mean that the Lord Jesus is close at hand. Which one of those are true? Answer, yes. Both of them are true and both of them fit well. How would it impact you in being able in the midst of conflict to respond with a forbearing spirit if you reminded yourself the Lord Jesus could come back anytime? The Lord is near. Or how might it help you or help me to fortify ourselves for a rescue operation rather than a defensive attack if we knew the Lord was so close at hand, watching and seeing and present in all that we do. You see, the point here is that we are to be joyful in the Lord and we are to be gentle before the Lord because He is near, always present. In fact, I think one of the call calls we have as believers is to show that God is in fact real, whether or not people ever think about him or are willing to admit that we as believers go through our day caring about an, an attitude and an atmosphere that is conscious of the presence of God in all that we do, whether we ever say it or not, although Lord willing, we do take opportunity, that he is nearby and he is real. Be the evidence in your world that there is a God in the universe and more than this, the fact that the Lord is near, let that grant you great courage to be gentle and to be yielding, to be peacemaking, to be reasonable. You ever had a situation where you knew there was a contentious uh, discussion or, or problem between you and another person and you just felt from the Lord, man, I need to move into this. I need to step towards it. I need to just say something. Right, But you bolster your defenses, you play it out a few dozen times in all the ways that it can go because you think by doing that I'll be so ready for whatever happens and it never goes any of the ways you planned. And you and I waste a lot of energy typically <laughs> planning for all of those scenarios. But you actually go and you do it and you ask for grace and you come in humility and you speak a word that you think is, is reasonable to say and say, look, can I just talk to you about this? And the person 
to your surprise, doesn't get defensive. And they go, you know what? Yeah, you're right. Thanks for saying something. You know what's a good description of that? Man, thank you, because that was really reasonable. That's the idea here. If you and I are willing to listen long enough and allow the Lord to protect our hearts to the point where we don't feel the need to immediately shoot out a response of strife or conflict or defense, but instead are able to speak the words to go, you know what? Yeah, thanks for saying that. There's, there's something right in what you said. People will be shocked. They'll go, wow, that was reasonable. I've never seen that before. And why is it possible for the Christian? Because the Lord is near. Because God is with you in that moment and peculiarly as you pursue a gentleness that alter, that off, a gentleness that, uh, I don't even know what word I'm looking for, that confirms the gentle yoke of Christ in our lives, that, that demonstrates that there is a God and he's real. And you can see glimpses of it in his people. And the Lord says, when you pursue that, I am with you. I am near. The reformers had a great phrase in the Latin, Coram Deo. It meant all of our lives are lived out before the face of God. That's the idea. Let your, your gentle spirit, your forbearance be known by everybody who knows you because you live your life before the face of God. Brothers and sisters, we are much in need of God's presence, aren't we? Be joyful in the Lord. That's where that's grounded. Be gentle before the Lord, before his face. That's where that's grounded. Third, be prayerful. Third, be prayerful. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Here the command is really first a negative one, be not anxious for anything. Again, it's an all-inclusive kind of a command. But the ability to not do that is found only in the commitment to do the second part. But be prayerful. Be not anxious, but pray. I wonder if there aren't truer words spoken in all of the English language than those. Be not anxious, but pray. Is there ever a generation or a people a time, an ethnicity, or an age for which that is not a truism. Our passage here is really going to great lengths to encourage us uh, to pray. It's piling up the terms here, Paul is. Just for fun, if you want to come back and meditate more on this one, because this is probably, I don't know, the third sermon for the morning that we could spend the whole week right here. But in verse 6, if you wanted to chew a bit more on the different words, but in everything by prayer, that first word, it is the, the general word of just you know talking to God, coming to Him with requests and praises and everything else. Then the second word, translated in the NAS, supplication. Here, the key idea in that word is need. It's our admission of need. It's coming to God as willing beggars. Not, not a beggar because, because I, I've come to the end of my rope and I have nothing else, but a willing beggar. Lord, where else would I go to find life? 
Where else can I go for, for clarity? Where else can I go for hope? You alone have it. I'm a willing beggar. I come with supplication to you. And then, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests, the word there is definite, specific petitions. I, I love the way it's phrased here in the English. It actually is a great translation of the original. Let your requests be made known. In other words, ask God's stuff. That's, that's in brass tacks what Paul is saying. And I love that. I love the practicality of that. Because sometimes we're just too spiritual for our own good. Oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritual. I've been spiritual all day. In fact, I've been prayerful. I've had a spirit, a spirit of prayer all day long. Great. Have you actually prayed? No, but I am like super early in the spirit of prayer. I remember uh, going uh, on a short-term mission trip with a, with a group of college students, and then on our way back, we were debriefing. Um, we were in another city, but be, uh, still overseas before we came back to the States. And, and part of our, like, 48 hours there uh, was we were getting some counsel and some encouragement, some good teaching and training, and then we we're being encouraged, look, take, take what you've learned and take some time alone with the Lord and just meditate and pray on what has God shown you? What, what in the, in the paradigm-shifting work of being in a whole new culture and trusting in God in whole new ways does God want to seize on and help you with, right? This is pretty important stuff. So it's sort of climactic for our time there. So we had a teaching in the morning. We had rich time of fellowship. And then it's like, okay, everybody's going to go. And you have like 45 minutes or an hour to spend time alone with the Lord. Well, at the end of our time and being in another culture, we were just exhausted. And I remember this one buddy. We, we broke and we all went to go spend time with the Lord, and the dude fell asleep. And like, you're supposed to be like super spiritual right now. And he slept through like the entire time that he was, but like we had to go wake him up at the end. Like, hey, dude, wake up. We woke, well, we teased him mercilessly for like every opportunity we could over the last few days. But I want you to know his response to all that is he said, no, man, no, dude, I was good. I was, I was in the spirit. I was sleeping, but I maintained an attitude of prayer. And, and so that just, of course, that became a catchphrase, like everybody, you know, seized on that. No, it's okay. I mean, I was doing X, Y, Z, but I maintained an attitude of prayer. I love Philippians. Paul just says, look, you just have to ask stuff. You have to actually say some things to God, communicate those requests so he knows them. Well, the good news is all manner of prayer through the Spirit, baptized in the sacrifice of Christ can be acceptable to God. But here he is saying, look, part of the discipline is you just have to actually come and formulate things and, and put, put your requests out there and, and put God on the line. Lord, would you specifically show me this today in this? He might say yes, he might say no, he might say wait, he might change the whole thing. That's fine, however he wants to answer. But you will never be disappointed by being more specific. I will never be out of place by asking him more specifically, could you do this? Or just even generally going, I have no idea what to do. Can you show me something in your way, in your time? That's part of what we get by these requests here. And then, of course, there's that fourth and final um, descriptor there with thanksgiving. You see, we must ask God, but all of our asking, all of our coming in prayer can be bathed in that attitude of gratefulness for God's grace. 
Gratitude is the nexus of all true prayer. Ian Bounds is, for me, one of my favorite authors on prayer. You guys probably have your own. Three quick quotes I want to give you from what Bounds writes in tying together these ideas of prayer and thanksgiving. First, short word about how thanksgiving and prayer just always go hand in hand. Gratitude arises from a contemplation of the goodness of God. It is bred by serious meditation on what God has done for us. Both gratitude and thanksgiving point to and have to do with God and his mercies. Point is, when we come to the Lord in prayer and we turn our focus on him, there in that place, seeing him, not a hand-wringing God, not a hair-pulling God, but an awesome, condescendingly gracious, loving and welcoming Lord of the universe, we find a God that we cannot help but say, Lord, you are great in your giving generous in your goodness and our praying and our gratitude go hand in hand second he speaks about the fruits of gratitude in prayer consideration of god's mercies not only begets gratitude but induces a large consecration to god of all that we have and are so that prayer and giving and generosity are all um, and consecration are all linked together inseparably translation when we come in thanking God for gratefulness, do you know what it produces in us? It produces consecration. We see you, Lord, and we go, Lord, look what you did here. Thank you. I remember that. I didn't know what to do, but you were faithful. Lord, I prayed about this, and you answered. Lord, I never prayed about this, and you answered anyway and knew what you were doing. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness in this. And you know what that creates in us? A consecration. Lord, why would I not want to give everything to follow you? You have been so good and so faithful. Why would I want not, not want to know you more deeply and give you every area of my life as best as I possibly can? That's part of the fruits of prayer and gratitude. And then lastly, from Bounds, he speaks about the war of gratitude. And that's especially fitting in our passage as Paul uses a number of words that are military terminology. The war for our minds, the war for our stability, the war to stand firm and the war for unity are all tied up with the war for gratitude. Gratitude and thanksgiving forever stand opposed to all murmurings at God's dealings with us and all complainings at our lots. Gratitude and murmuring never abide in the same heart at the same time. An unappreciative spirit has no standing beside gratitude and praise. And true prayer corrects complaining and promotes gratitude and thanksgiving. Let me say that again. True prayer corrects complaining. It's a good word. Dissatisfaction at one's lot and a disposition to be discontented with things which come to us in the providence of God are foes to gratitude and enemies to thanksgiving. The murmurers are ungrateful people. Appreciative men and women have neither the time nor the disposition to stop and complain. Be prayerful with thanksgiving as we come into the presence of the Lord and we see him for who he is. There we go, look who you are and look what you've done. And that begins to drive out the strife of complaints. That begins to drive out the fears of other things because what else is there that I need more than what he can give me from his good hand? So be prayerful in gratitude to the Lord because the soul of prayer will not be easily overthrown. Fourth, be joyful in the Lord 
Be gentle before the Lord. Be prayerful in gratitude to the Lord. Fourth, be peaceful. Be peaceful. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This, strictly speaking, isn't actually in a command form. It's not an imperative, but it's an understood imperative because it's the growth of, of what comes out of. It's the fruit of the prayerfulness, which takes away anxiety and produces in us something else, peace. The motivation for the prayer of verse 6 is the peacefulness that God offers. And not only is it the motivation, but it's actually the power to obey the command to not be anxious. Lord, how can I possibly not be anxious? I'm good at anxious. I mean, there are a few things in this life that I'm like a graduate of, of that school. I am like the graduate of the school of anxious. I can totally do that without help. And, and, and maybe you're the same. But notice this peace that we are given, in fact, promised. Notice again, it's grounded in the peace of God. The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. This is not a natural thing. This is not just the absence of any conscious strife. It's not just a feeling. Plop me down, right, by, by the, uh, the white sands and, you know, the clear waters uh, somewhere in the Caribbean, and I could probably get a bit of peace, right, for a couple minutes. But this is so much more than any feeling like that. This is the supernatural work of God whose peace is the power to reconcile rebels to their maker, this is the redemptive power to transform hearts and bring us into union with God. It's the power to bring our very hearts into alignment with his will and his love and his purpose. That's what we're talking about. And what does this peace do? This peace of God, which is grounded in him. This peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It says it'll guard. It'll guard our hearts and minds. The idea here is this peace is a sentinel. It's a sentry. It's found there in the city gates watching all who come in and go out. The, the word is a very military term. In fact, in some places it could be translated garrison. I like that, not as a noun, but a verb. May the peace of God garrison your hearts and your minds love that phrase. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, I believe it was another writing, he, he talks about the city of Mansoul, and he says, the city of Mansoul has, had, has for it appointed a sentry, a sentinel, one who stand watch, stands watch, um, I believe, if I have it right, I believe uh, his name is Mr. God's Peace. Mr. God's Peace is the sentry over man's soul. And so long as he stands at his post, in the city of man's soul, there is peace. In the city of man's soul, there is harmony and there is joy and there is life and there is refreshment. But when the Prince Emmanuel is chased away, then God's peace leaves his post and all manner of enemies invade the city. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will 
guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You know what I love about it being beyond comprehension? I can't conjure it, and I don't need to. In fact, most likely, if you have experienced the peace that surpasses understanding, it's very likely you've experienced it in the moments you've least expected it. Question. What do you think if we were to ask Stephen Curtis Chapman? That moment, that morning, at this time, after this happens, Stephen, our brother, will you have peace? He will say, I cried my eyes out. I worried like crazy, but I prayed my guts out for all it was worth. And all I know is I stopped and rolled down the window and I spoke out of the glorious, surpassing, eternal peace of God. I spoke words of life that my son needed to hear. Right? And that's how it, I think, probably usually is. This is the redemptive strength of God, this guarding peace that can draw people back to him. One quick caveat to give you so you don't overly beat yourself up, so I don't overly abuse myself this week in struggling under this desire to not be anxious but be prayerful and to be peaceful. I want you to notice two nearby incidents in Scripture, two things that are close to this. And they'll help you figure out how you're doing if you're going to spend your week in this sermon, in this verse. Remember that the Apostle Paul says that I am burdened with the concern of the churches all the time. What's the point? Paul, who can recite the command not to be anxious, will, and I think without sin, be able to say, and yet my heart was constantly burdened with concern. You understand the point? I think it is right to have a concern a godly concern that may not necessarily be sinful anxiety. And I think the Holy Spirit of God is big enough to show you the difference. Do you think it's okay to have a godly concern? I don't know. Is anybody a parent in the room? Or you might say, well, yeah, that was Paul's example, but hey, let's not make Paul you know, too sinless. Not everything that Paul did is exactly the perfect model of God because Paul's a sinner too. Good, good enough. Let's go to the Lord Jesus. And let's remember in his darkest hour, on the night of Gethsemane, as he prayed as it, as he prayed and he sweat, as it were, drops of blood. Remember what he said? Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me because I am greatly, what? Troubled. Christ, the eternal God-man, was troubled. With good reason, right? Crucifixion is enough how much more to take on the wrath of God for the sin of the world and become sin itself. Good reason to be troubled, but here's the point. I have no doubt Jesus never sinned. So there is a time for a fitting concern. Bring all of that to the Lord if you are at a place where you are wrestling and you are deep in the weeds on that and you're needing to sink roots in that. Let that guide your discussions with the Lord and your your learning from him this week. May that be a help. Be joyful in the Lord. Be gentle before the Lord. Be prayerful to the Lord. And here be peaceful in the shelter of the Lord because he stands guard. And so we can have peace because he neither slumbers nor sleeps. Each of these, by the way, are daily practices. 
And yet, if possible, what comes next is maybe even more fundamental, maybe either even further at bottom, if you will, in that where Paul now closes, where he goes, is directly to how we guide our thoughts and our actions every day. So lastly, he says, be prepared. Be prepared by the Lord. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, verse 8, honorable, right, pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Be prepared by dwelling on these things. And then nine, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Be prepared by practicing these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So how does Paul exhort them to be prepared? We're just ending in the same place we started. When we are squeezed, what will come out is what we're grounded in. All of these other things we've mentioned, be joyful, be prayerful, right? All of these other things, be peaceful. These are daily practices, but how much more do we store up or do we ground ourselves in what's going to come out when we're squeezed if we will direct our thoughts and if we will pattern our actions? So this last command has two parts, direct your thoughts and pattern your actions. If this is the sermon you want to spend your week in, verse 8, I'm just going to quickly touch on a couple of the words. This is where you could, you could do your own work. You can do your own word study. You could get something that will access the original languages, or you can just get some good commentaries and good Bible teachers. And you can use this as a litmus test if you find yourself in temptation, if you find yourself in confusion, if you're not sure about your direction. Or, or in a myriad of other things, you could just go through this list, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, and on it goes. Let me touch on a couple of them for you, and you can do more work. First, whatever is true. I love that one. And the handful of times in my life that I've uh, had this passage brought to mind, and I thought, you know, I need to stop and think through all those things right here, right now. I'll just tell you this. The very first one, whatever is true, about 90% of the time, that one will solve the problem all by itself, Right? Because just about every temptation you know is a lie. Just, just about every failing or falling that you might have is probably in some way connected to a deception. And if, in your thinking rightly about something, you find a failing or a need or a shortcoming in yourself, great, glorious, good, that's what's true. And that's why God never planned for you to do it on your own. And so what is true is he gave you his spirit, right? Whatever is true, there you go. Whatever is honorable. This is, um, this is a strong word, heavy in the best sense. This has the overtones of awe-inspiring, respectful, sober-minded. Whatever brings awe to your mind, that's the kind of honor or respect he has in mind here. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that aren't frivolously good to enjoy, but there are things that are flippant that can be distractors. Whatever is right, this has judgment overtones, justice and injustice, whatever is proper in the sight of God. No, I'm sorry, a man should not speak to a woman that way. 
who is not his wife, for example, right? And myriad others. Whatever is pure. And there are some things that may not seem black and white, but it sure is gray. But that ain't pure, I can tell you that much. That is dabbling. That is dangerous. That is toe-dipping, right? Whatever is lovely. This is an interesting word. I think the simplest translation for this is probably just the word attractive. I think the English translators probably shied away from the word attractive here because there is much in our world today that is terribly attractive that is not from God, right? But I think it's perfectly fine for Paul to have used the word in the original because he has just given us true, awe-inspiringly honorable, right and pure, and then he says, whatever is lovely or attractive. Well, friends, you know what's glorious about getting to know the Lord more? And you know this as you grow in him. He doesn't tell us that we can't have beauty. He just, tell us, he just tells us that we get better beauties. We get more attractive glories as we grow in knowing the Lord. Whatever is of good report, I would add the word edifying. It builds it up. It builds you up. People speak positively of it. That's the idea of, of good report. And then, and then Paul says, look, I could go on with the list. This is just to give you the idea. So he just throws a banner over the whole thing. And he says, if there's anything that's excellent or anything that's worthy of praise, dwell on these things, ponder these things, exercise your faculties, do we ever, as a spiritual discipline, just sit down and say, you know what, Lord, will you help me for the next few minutes just to think these things, to think this way about that person? Glorious discipline, right? About this situation. If you are struggling with loving somebody in your life and you're in danger of a root of business growing up, as Hebrews tells us, what, what a glorious passage to pray through with regard to that situation. Thanking God, rejoicing in the Lord, asking for help as I go or as you go. We get the idea. Be prepared by the Lord. Includes direct your thoughts. And then lastly, pattern your actions. Paul gives himself in verse 9 as the example and really, it's himself and his missionary cohorts who have come with him. Silas probably could include Epaphroditus and Timothy, whom he's mentioned by name just back in chapter 3. This is Paul who told them in verse 1, he said, Brethren, loved and longed for, my brothers and sisters, my crown and my joy. He speaks to them with lavish love. And he says, you guys saw my life. It's not perfect. But if you saw anything in me worth following, follow it. If you heard me say anything, if, if you were there and you watched me do it, pattern your life after it. Paul will use himself as an example in multiple cases in the New Testament, by the way, and I don't think it's arrogant or out of place. I think especially because in the first century, before you know they had all of these letters in codex form between two covers, how do I know how to walk as a Christian? Answer by following the Christians who came to me is one of the best ways. And the good news is we still haven't gotten over that even today. Now, Paul will say in writing to the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. So he will add the encouragement. It's not that I do everything perfect, 
It's just that if you see something that is Christ-like in me, maybe that'll help you get there as well. Bob and Val are a couple that uh, ministered often uh, to Molly and me when we were in college, especially Val ministering to Molly. She met with her uh, regularly for a good period of time. And Molly learned so much from Bob and Val, even things that impacted our first years of marriage, even things that impacted our first years and even our first days and weeks of, um, of being parents. Uh, I could probably share a lot, but I'll, I'll just share one super specific example. It was just so simple. Bob and Val had this, this like sort of agreed upon um, reaction. They, they just, if they were, I think when Molly last was meeting with Val, I don't know if they had two kids or if they were up to three by that point. But uh, Molly had seen Val do a lot of parenting and sat in her home and sat on her couch a lot. And she said, uh, Val and Bob both, if they were at a point where they were just at odds with the kids and there was conflict and they would, like, they, they would be like a pull your hair out moment. They just had this thing they would do. You know what it is? They'd lower their voice. That was it. And I, I learned that from them through Molly. And, and that was brilliant. I mean, that was life-changing for me. I come from a family of shouters, right? The great thing about shouters is you always know where you stand. The terrible thing about shouters is you may not know where you stand, and there's always a lot of shrapnel after it's all over, okay? Stuffers have their own issues, right? Stuffers are different, and they're great at certain things, and they're terrible. We all have our issues, okay? But I come from shouters. That was my training. This, this was life-changing. And I remember the first time I tried it. I remember it, and the kids, probably poor little Noah, was a little guy, and I was just like ready to lose it. And I'm like, okay. And a bing, it came to my mind. I just lowered my voice, and it changed everything. And, and I had seen Molly do it. I was a much slower learner. In fact, I learned really well because there were a couple of times I saw Molly do it to me. <laughs> and I was like, man, I must really be in trouble right now. She's like, okay, honey, let me talk to you about this. I'm like, oh, man, I am in so much trouble. <laughs> Pattern your actions after those who have gone before you and let that help be a model for your life and my life to ground us in the Lord. Be joyful in the Lord. Be gentle before the Lord. Be prayerful in gratitude to the Lord. Be peaceful in the protection of the Lord and be prepared. Praise God that he has given us all of these means to grow in being grounded in him. Stand with me and let's close in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you so much that you know exactly our hearts and our spirits. You know every struggle we've ever had or will have. You knit us together and designed us. And you, Lord God, can speak authoritatively in our hearts. So these commands are not things that are natural for me or for any of us. But Holy Spirit, you love to feed us and fuel us when we are willing to walk like this. You, Holy Spirit, are great at covering us and guarding us with God-given peace when we will be prayerful, joyful, and grateful. You, Almighty God, have surrounded us with men and women to learn from and learn with. Would you help us this week, our great God, to be more grounded in you for the crises will come in their days. And we will have many even 
maybe smaller this week. Ground us in you. Lord, we ask if any here in our midst do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ as their hope and as their peace, if they don't know the all-surpassing peace of God that can make peace between their rebellion through your sacrifice to your goodness and fatherly love, then, Lord, how we pray they would throw down their striving, their fighting, and their pretension, and they would come home and be made whole. Lord, we, your people, come to you. Make us whole. Ground us and grow us in you. All we ask, this all we ask for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.